We still don't know for sure what happened with SARS. We still don't know for sure what happened with Ebola, for example. All we can get to with a lot of these viruses, unfortunately, and these outbreaks is a likely scenario. Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome to episode 24 of the Science Centric Podcast. Now, for the past year, I've sort of avoided doing an episode about the coronavirus. There are a couple of reasons for this. One, the situation, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was changing really fast. At best, I only publish a couple new episodes per month, so anything discussed may have been irrelevant by the time it was posted or would have quickly become irrelevant. And the second reason is, like me, I'm sure you're a little bit burned out on talking, thinking, and hearing about COVID. After all, it's pretty much dominated our waking lives for the past year. But now that the fog of the pandemic is starting to clear and we can get our bearings, I thought it would be a good time to talk about how we got into this mess and what we can do to avoid another one like it. And that's why I invited my former colleague, Dina Feinmarin, to be the guest in this episode. Dina is an investigative reporter for National Geographic covering wildlife crime and was previously a health reporter and editor for Scientific American Magazine. Before pursuing a career in journalism, Dina earned a master's degree in public health. In short, she knows a lot about public health and wildlife trafficking, and by all indications, those were two important factors in the origin of COVID. Dina and I discussed the connection between healthcare and wildlife trafficking, how COVID-19 could have made its way from bats into humans, whether there's any evidence coronavirus originated in a lab, and what China is doing to prevent future pandemics. This is a great episode, so stay tuned. But before we dive in, a few quick reminders on how you can keep this series going. One, rate our podcast and write us a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Two, find out how you can support our work by going to sciencecentric.com support. And now let's jump into the conversation with Dina. Welcome to the Science Centric Podcast. So awesome to see you again and to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. <laughs> um, so I usually like to ask guests like a little bit of background, um, you know, a background question. I, th- I thought what I would ask you is, um, you have a background uh, in public health, a master's degree in public health. You were a, a journalist for Scientific American Magazine uh, in the past where, where we worked together. Um, and then more recently, you've been working for National Geographic as a senior investigative wildlife crime reporter, if I have that correctly. Um, so so how, did you, how did you make the jump or why did you make the jump from, from health over to um, reporting on wildlife uh, crime in particular, and are there, um, does your background in public health help you in any way in terms of covering this, or does it give you a unique perspective? Are you able to find stories in a different way because of your background? Good question. Yeah, so I moved to National Geographic after more than five years at Scientific American, mainly because I was just looking for a new challenge. Um, And I was really intrigued by the beat of wildlife crime. I had done some investigations at Scientific American under the health platform about like maternal health and morbidity and strokes among young people. Um, And so we wanted to do more investigations. But I was surprised to learn something I didn't know before I started in this job that traditional medicine practices are a huge, if not the leading driver for wildlife crime. Um, In in particular, uses of animal parts for traditional Chinese medicine are a huge driver behind uh, crime as far as uh, rhino horn, which is used medicinally, pangolin scales, which are used medicinally, um, a lot of products in that regard. And it's not just traditional Chinese medicine, it's also medicine practices usually that do not have any evidence behind them for many communities in Latin America and elsewhere. Um, and so there's really that connection there. And I've been really fascinated to see as a health reporter um, what a lot of people in the medical community think about those issues. Um, so that's uh-huh. been really interesting and cool to look into um, and to feel that there is indeed that real big connection. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. 
yeah, not something I would have immediately thought of. Although I, I do, right. I did know that there was this sort of that the demand for these wildlife products was being driven by, um, you know, traditional medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just just kind of riffing on that. Do you think that modernizing uh, medicine in these countries uh, or these regions that are fueling this demand would would lessen the demand and therefore reduce the amount of wildlife trafficking? I think there really needs to be support from the top, meaning from the country level, about what or what organisms should be included in traditional medicine. For example, in China, um, there's a pharmacopoeia, meaning a list of approved formulations and what should go into them for traditional Chinese medicine. And so for any given condition in traditional Chinese medicine, my understanding from speaking to experts in the field is there's different formulations to treat the same thing. Uh Um, So you could use a collection of herbs that would help uh, or are believed to help for a certain condition as opposed to using pangolin scales for that same issue. Um, some practices in traditional Chinese medicine do have evidence backing them up um, that they do work from a Western science perspective and more science is being accumulated in some areas. So I wouldn't say the solution is let's just write off traditional medicine completely yeah. or any other complementary medicine, but. Um, leadership about making sure that endangered animals are not being threatened by your medical practices for humans matters. An unfortunate thing is that even if sometimes if people say till you're blue in the face, there's no evidence that this works and we don't want this to be used, some people will still, because they love their family, frankly, or they think it might really work, of course, they still want to do it. So for example, um, some some things that have been used like rhino horn that has sometimes been used as a cancer treatment um family if you love a family member you can see the motivation to say Mm. well my beloved family member is really sick i want to feel that i tried everything i do care about rhinos if that is true in that case and but i still really just want to give this a shot and yeah you know it's tough to to tackle that problem completely. Um, With that said, leadership from the top really matters and outlawing using certain animals and taking them off the approved formulations would be a huge help. Yeah, and I think uh, if if I remember correctly, like China has made some progress recently in that, right? Like they've taken some some things off. What are some of those things that they've... Yeah, uh, in the last year, uh, pangolins is the example I keep using because pangolin scale has just really taken off in the last, you know, five years, I guess, especially um, with it being the largest non-human mammal that's trafficked at the moment. Um, yeah. And so you kill you kill the pangolin and you take off its scales. The scales are, you know, a material sort of like keratin in your fingernails. Um, and then sometimes the meat is consumed as well. Uh, but China may, you know, as Uh, given pangolins a high level of protection now and has also taken them for the most part off the list of approved pharmaceuticals that are being allowed. Now there are a couple carve outs that still allow them to wiggle through like they're in some formulations, meaning a couple of medications where they're one ingredient are still apparently allowed. It's what experts Mm. um, who cover this stuff in China tell me, but um, for the most part, you know that was a big move towards helping pangolins. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah. it seems like it seems like a lot of these med- these uh, medicinal pro- products are like overly focused on keratin. I don't know why that is, but it's like rhino horn, pangolin scale. It's like I don't yeah. I don't know why that is. Um, yeah. Uh, so, as a you know former health reporter, were you? Uh, were you glad to to not be covering COVID this last year, or or <laughs> or were you disappointed? You're like, oh my God, there's so many stories here I could be writing about. Well, it it certainly has been strange. I was on the front lines of covering Ebola and Zika and chikungunya when those were big issues in the news. Yeah. Um, so it's been weird to be somewhat removed from that. I have found myself now that my beat is pretty narrowly wildlife crime, wildlife trade. I have been written, writing a fair bit about the animal connections to coronavirus, yeah. meaning uh, the the mink trade. These are mink that are farmed for their fur. Mink, as uh, many people know, have 
experienced coronavirus have given it back to humans. Humans have been giving it to mink. There's been a lot of action on that with hundreds of farms in the US and in Europe and in Canada uh, that have had coronavirus so far. And so writing about those zoonotic threat elements here and what should or could be done about this and the trade, the wildlife trade and its connections to both this particular pandemic and other outbreaks that have occurred in the past and indeed probably will occur in the future. Um, yeah. But it is obviously it's a big story of our time, coronavirus, and we look at everything that happens in our daily life now through the lens, I think, <laughs> of coronavirus, including what I write about. Um, I've also been writing a lot about how in a lot of countries that have really depended on tourism, whether it's safari tourism in the case of Africa or um, or wildlife tourism in general, yeah. the collapse of those with the collapse of global uh, travel, obviously, that's been a huge hit to rural communities, especially who've been turning both in some cases to more poaching uh, but also to more wildlife for bushmeat so that they and their families can eat or that they can sell them in local markets to make money um, with the collapse of tourism that means direct jobs have disappeared yeah. meaning like if you're a safari guide but also all the incidental jobs you know that you may not think about about like being a cook or being a driver or being someone that services the landscape of a hotel a lot of those jobs disappeared and that's had really deleterious effects i've been writing about that in uh, Uganda and Kenya and in Madagascar. Yeah. And it's it's just been really sad to hear. And also a lot of the funding that supports rangers in a lot of countries. These are rangers that are looking for poachers are directly funded by tourism in whole or at least in part. And so without those salaries, you're also, you know, amplifying the trouble problem. One thing I was interested to hear is a lot of rangers have told me that um, having tourists on the ground actually also helps directly fight uh, poaching because there are literally more eyeballs on the ground. Mm -hmm. If you're going by in your safari Jeep, there are more people looking out and that's a deterrent <laughs> for people to come in and poach wildlife. So that's a real, you know, yeah. thing that's also disappeared, which is interesting. Yeah, we were just, uh, uh, this sounds like an odd connection, but we were just talking about that there's been, seems like there's a lot of crime on, on New York subways recently. and. Hmm. we were kind of speculating it's just because there's less eyeballs there's less people riding hmm. the train so if like you're if you're alone on a train you know there's yeah. probably not another person maybe it's just you and someone that wants to do something bad so it's sort of the same idea it's just like the more people that are looking at it watching it like yeah um so it sounds like though that you've you know you've you've found your um sort of angles to kind of <laughs> or connections that tie covid into this Definitely. um so i i wanted to um, talk a little bit about, and I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, but let me back up a little bit. So, so it's my understanding that, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been hearing a lot of warnings from public health experts about Asia and, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, China in particular, with the, the way that they, um, with these with these wildlife markets, uh, you know, and and how they keep animals and potential for uh, disease spread, um, and then we also hear this term wet markets, um, and I feel like those things are used synonymously, um, and and this is where they you know I think it's been I think people at least early on in the in the pandemic were saying well the, that the the coronavirus originated in these markets. Could you just like clear up what's the difference between a live market and a wet market and what the connection uh, between those is to, you know, where we think coronavirus came from? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'll jump in first talking about, so a wet market is this broad term. It means like any outdoor market that has like open air stalls, they'll sell fresh seafood and meat and fruit and veggies. So they could, you could use that term for farmers markets really that are okay. here in the United States. Um, now some wet markets do sell and slaughter live animals on site. That could be chicken, fish, shellfish, it could be wildlife. Um, and so this really jumped into the public mind with the Huanan seafood wholesale wet market. Mm -hmm. um, obviously that's in Wuhan and that's where a lot of the connections have been made because 
uh, to coronavirus because a lot of the early cases, 70% of around 40 cases that were studied early on had some connection to though to that particular market. So people yeah. were wondering about the connections there. And subsequently, there's also been another uh, another market that sold wildlife that also had a patient who's connected to that market. So people are wondering about these markets in general. Um, so wet markets, again, do not always have live wild animals to be slaughtered. They might just be selling general produce and meat. Um, but in some cases they are selling uh, live wildlife. <laughs> and you're right that these connections have been made for more than 20 years. When SARS broke out, which is another coronavirus, when SARS uh, broke out in 2003 in China, uh, a lot of connections were made in the scientific literature to civets, which are mm. a cat-like animal um, that was sold for consumption. And uh, they were found with very similar virus in the wild. And so people really thought that connection was pretty solid. Um, and so around then there were bans put in place, at least temporarily, about eating civet. Civet has come back into the public consciousness as something that people eat um, and is sold in some marketplaces for eating once again. And there's been some speculation that civet might be a species that was involved in the current coronavirus outbreak as well. Mm -hmm. um, again, because that species is known to um, be host to other coronaviruses. So people wonder, hmm, coronaviruses all interconnected. There are some similarities. Could civet be a species that's involved here? Yeah. Uh, the concern in these markets in general about the connection, it, it's, it's not that hard to make the logical leap from a scientific perspective. You say, okay, well, here you have, for example, with coronavirus, the current coronavirus, you say, well, there's virus that's 96% similar to what's happening in people in, in bats that have been found in Southern China. Okay, so maybe the bats had coronavirus and maybe they interacted with some animals that were at wildlife farms in the nearby area. So these are farms that were raising wildlife to be sold and, and slaughtered at one of these marketplaces. So maybe the bats feces or urine, the animals somehow encountered it, and then the animals were kept in tight quarters with each other on the farm and on transport to the marketplace. And as they, these animals interacted and were packed tightly together, let's say they were biting each other, or their saliva was dripping, or their feces was being spread from one animal to yeah. another on their paws or on their noses, and then the virus is constantly replicating as any virus does, mutating in the process as any virus does, and then perhaps mutated to such an extent that when a person at the marketplace was slaughtering these animals, maybe they had a cut on their fingers, if they breathed in virus yeah. one way or another, the virus had mutated enough that the person now was capable of being host and then the virus took off. That, according to the World Health Organization, seems like the most likely theory of so, what happened. So just to re so we're going from from bats, right? Mm -hmm. And now, are those bats, do people eat bats in these? Are, are they sold in the marketplace? I know I saw some pictures early on, but you know, of dubious mm -hmm. origin um, of mm -hmm. like bats being cooked, but they don't actually eat them. Uh, I'm that... told that in China, they do not eat bats, that bats okay. are not commercially sold, bats are not sold in the marketplace, bats are not on the menu. Um, I'm told that by Peter Lee, who is Humane Society International's China director. Okay. He himself grew up in China. Um, and he said that though he did not live in an extremely rural community that he is aware of and has traveled there for work and that that yeah. is not done. So, Or at least not commonly. It's maybe maybe, commonly maybe in some kind of famine situation, people, you know, right. people would do what they needed to survive. But Totally fair. Yeah, yeah that's possible. Um, um, of course, no one knows what happens with every individual household. <laughs> sure, but on sure. any commercial scale, that's not yeah. done. Yeah. And so... But, but they do again, eat, yeah, sorry. So, but they ahead. do eat civets. So, so, the, so, the, so you're saying, okay, we're going from bats to civets. Or maybe another species. Yeah. Again, there are several species that are biologically capable of hosting other coronaviruses. So pangolins, civets are, are a couple that have been mentioned. There are other wildlife uh, animals that are consumed as well by people. Bamboo rats, for example, are sold at restaurants. Now, uh, an important thing to make clear is that most people in China, if you open their fridge, it's like what's found in America in the sense that there's chicken, there's pork, those are very popular foods. Yeah. You don't open your fridge and find bamboo rat. That's not a staple for 
individuals normally. Now at restaurants, they'll be sold as a delicacy. You know, just like in the United States, you might go to a to a to a restaurant and find cricket on the menu, and maybe you don't normally eat cricket. Akin, these restaurants in China sure. might sell you bamboo rat. They might sell you soup that has civet and snake and a few other species in it. But that's not the general norm for people yeah. in China. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've seen. So I have a couple of thoughts. One is that, um, I mean, I've had a fair amount of interaction with, with Chinese culture in particular through doing martial arts and going out mm-hmm. to eat a lot. And I know that they really like fresh things and, you know, the fresher, the better. And that may have some something to do with, um, you know, refrigeration uh, mm-hmm. historically, like there wasn't good refrigeration. So it's like, OK, I want to eat something. I want to know it was killed you know, recently so that I can make sure that it's fresh. That's, that's mm-hmm. my thinking on, on these markets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you typically see it like if you go to a Chinese restaurant in the U.S., they always have like fresh fish out front. It's like, you know, right. those, those live fish tanks. And then they'll, I mean, I've been in a restaurant where they actually, you know, I was looking at eels in the tank in the front. And then next <laughs> thing I know, it's served to me in a little soup yeah. dish, you know? I mean, it's, it's yeah. definitely like part of that culture. Um, yeah. And in other cultures, like picking your own lobster at a restaurant. At a Absolutely. Restaurant. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's something about that, that fresh, uh, yeah, seafood in particular. But um, totally. Um, so, so what I'm kind of wondering is that if it's, if that's really part of the culture, it, you know, has, has anything changed that we're not going to have another situation like this where there's, um, you know, assuming that that's where uh, COVID-19 originated, if, if nothing sort of changes, I mean, are we going to see like another pandemic come down the pipe that, that you know, from, from this region as well? I mean, is that something to worry about at this point or has the Chinese government clamped yeah. down? Well, in response to COVID-19, um, China's legislative body uh, took action and said, okay, we are banning the consumption and sale of wildlife. So they listed what wildlife is, um, and this is terrestrial wildlife, so not seafood, but animals found on land like pangolins and civets and so forth. They said, you cannot eat those anymore. Um, And they shut down, according to state media, they shut down all the wildlife markets, pardon me, all the wildlife farms as well. Now the wildlife farms were these usually small rural farms that were promoted as a poverty reduction tool. They would Mm -hmm. help you fund it so it was subsidized. And let's say you'd raise bamboo rats and they would be sold off in the marketplace. And they employed millions of people. There were thousands of these farms, many thousands of the farms. And so they shut all these down um, in 2020 as a direct result of coronavirus. So Mm -hmm. without the farms, it will be difficult to, you know, continue to support that industry. That doesn't mean no one's growing it. That just means, or that they couldn't start growing them again. Um, But right now, that's a significant step. Now, a lot of these farms, according to some experts I've spoken with, say that some of the farms were just covered. They weren't actually breeding the animals. They were trapping wild animals Uh. and selling them as bread. and again, if the animal is wild, maybe it would have been encountering more disease threats as well. Um, but whether or not this will have long-term changes, I guess, is a little bit up in the air. Again, yeah. civets, you know, went on pause after SARS in 2003, and then they came back. So it's hard to know what will happen long-term. I think certainly the scale of this pandemic is so large that it will stay in people's minds. And so you would think that would lead to larger actions. Yeah. But our engagement with wildlife continues in China and elsewhere, both in the pet industry and in the fur industry for food. And in China, for example, though they took this huge step to ban um, to ban the consumption of meat and the sale of, pardon me, of wild meat and the sale of it, um, they did not shut down farms that are having other purposes. So China has a gigantic fur industry, um, both in terms of its demand and its supply. Mink in particular is gigantic there. It's one of the biggest and perhaps now the biggest in the world um, due to the shutdowns of so many other countries, mink industries. And we get, we know that mink obviously is capable of carrying coronavirus and passing it back to people. Now the information from China about uh, coronavirus on its mink farms is 
non-existent. We don't know what's happening in China as far as mink farms, or even if they're testing on mink farms there. Um, so, but we do know that their mink industry has continued. Um, and also if your farm is raising wildlife for other purposes, usually traditional Chinese medicine yeah. or ornamentation, you're still allowed to do that as well. So people are still engaging with wildlife very closely. And that is something that you could say will continue to be risky for people. Yeah. Is there is there something that's unique about, so you've mentioned minks and you meant, mentioned civets. In my mind, those are kind of similar organisms. They're these small carnivorous uh, mammals. Mm-hmm. I don't know how closely related they are. I know, the, I think the minks in the weasel family, right? And the, I don't know about civets, um, but they're somewhat similar. Is there something unique about that type of animal that for passing coronavirus or... <laughs> That's a good question, and I actually don't know the answer okay. to that. Like, we're all, you know, we're all mammals, and we're not that far apart. Like, mice are not that far apart from humans, which is why they're used so commonly in lab experiments to understand uh, threats or disease um, uh, solutions and pharmaceuticals. Um, but a lot of this is also the conditions they're kept in. You know, let's take a species like minks. Mink in the wild are very territorial creatures. They live a mile apart from one another. They only come together in the springtime to mate and briefly in the summer they run with their siblings and that's it. Otherwise, if a mink comes across another mink, they will keep their distance and if they don't, one will spray the other with this Uh, like intense smelly spray that I'm told is somewhat like garlic, only more pungent from its anal glands. It's not a pretty scene. Um, So they, whereas in, you know, in the farm setting, they're kept in these rows and rows of cages and these giant barns or sheds, you know, where they are all living very close to each other and they could interact and they're sharing air. And for an airborne disease like this, you know, that's a big deal. Yeah. so there's, so you know, it's a really false uh, equivalency. Circle. Yeah, it's a really unnatural condition for that type of animal. So that exactly. that would make sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had also so I remember making a video about um, when people were concerned about avian flu mm-hmm. and was talking about chickens and pigs. But that the those domesticated animals don't seem to be implicated in coronavirus. Is that? Well, there have been some domestic animals that have had coronavirus, like pet cats and dogs, um, as well as some zoo animals like big cats and gorillas. Um, But uh, we haven't seen it in like pigs or chickens or cows as of yet. That's okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I think pigs pigs get implicated a lot because they have a similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, immune system and such to ours, but um, right. but maybe not relevant here. Um, I I would say we're learning more things every single day about the you know number of organisms that are capable of carrying it. And you know, yeah. <laughs> there have been many species that have been infected in the lab, but we haven't found them in the wild. Like for example, white-tailed deer have been found in the lab to be able to have coronavirus, but we haven't seen any white-tailed deer in the wild with coronavirus. And, you know, you could argue, well, we can't sample all the white-tailed deer, so if they were encountering it, maybe we wouldn't know. I don't mean to fearmonger, and I'm not saying that white-tailed deer have it, but I am just saying this is something, you know, this is why a lot of wildlife experts and zoonotic disease threat experts say we really need to be doing a lot more sampling Mm. at the wildlife-human interface just to make sure we're aware of what's happening, both with this coronavirus and many other potential disease threats. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that people aren't like going out and testing populations of white-tailed deer, right? I mean, not not in mass that we would even know if they were having there, an yeah, outbreak. People people are are trying to develop um, tests for white-tailed deer actually to oh. go out and do that testing, um, but it hasn't occurred yet. You're totally right. Yeah. Now. In the United States, where there have been more than a dozen mink farms that had outbreaks, there is testing. Biologists are testing areas around farms, sampling yeah. various wildlife that they're able yeah. to cage up and see, aha, do any of these ferrets, do any of these mice, do any of these you know, feral cats that we're finding, do any of them have coronavirus? So sampling is occurring there, but if you catch a dozen animals around a massive farm and you know hundreds, if not thousands of animals live in the wild, you're not getting the full picture. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the, just the whole term wildlife farm just seems like an almost like an oxymoron to me. <laughs> you know, it's like when you think of wildlife, you think they're in the wild, not on a yep. farm. It's that's yep. kind of I'm a bizarre with you. I'm with you. bizarre term. Um, so I wanted to back up a little bit to the origins of coronavirus. And we you know, we've been talking sort of under the assumption that that they did originate in, you know, either live markets or wildlife farms. But more recently, mm-hmm. there's been speculation that, well, this is, you know, this may have come from a lab um, mm-hmm. in, in Wuhan. The, some of the universities there are, are, were doing research that on coronaviruses that was sort of, you know, in that dangerous realm of infectious disease research. I mean, is do we have good evidence that, that COVID-19 came from uh, these markets or I mean is are, could we be completely off the mark and it and it originated in in a lab somewhere so earlier this month the World Health Organization had an expert panel of um, folks from around the world who went to China for a brief trip and tried to get some answers about what happened with coronavirus and its origins it wasn't meant to be the aha conclusive answer, but they were doing a report on what they found. They came back and they said, we think that that theory, namely the theory of a lab, is the least likely. They considered it extremely unlikely, they said. Now, here's the evidence for and against. The reason, as you pointed out, the reason they thought, okay, maybe this is possible is because there are a couple labs in the Wuhan area that were doing research on bat coronaviruses. And again, we know coronaviruses, in theory, you know, can jump from one species to another. We've seen that with other types of coronaviruses. So they thought that was suspect. Um, And there is a history of lab accidents can happen. Sure, they've happened throughout history in the U.S. and elsewhere where something gets out. Um, Now, the reason they think it's so unlikely, however, is there are no known lab workers who are sick. Um, There's been testing of some lab workers that 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 worked there. I don't know how many of them were tested, but they did not find antibodies. So that suggests they didn't have coronavirus. they, the WHO team that went to China s- spoke with uh, folks who worked at those labs about their protocols. They liked hearing what they heard. They were standard scientific gold standard approaches. Now that's not the same thing as a full audit. That has not been done. They did not get full access to the labs to do a complete examination and look through all the lab records and do what would traditionally be done if a lab leak was under suspect in, let's say, the United States, there's a typical procedure to do an audit. That audit has not been done, so we cannot say conclusively that did not happen. Yeah. With that said, people tend to think in, you know, the most likely theory is probably the most likely answer. And that's and it seems the most scientifically plausible that what happened was something like I described happened from a wildlife farm to a wildlife market to people. We don't know for sure that that happened. For example, another theory that um, is being considered is a direct jump from bats to people that somehow mm-hmm. that direct interaction took place. We've seen that happen with another disease called Nipah virus. Mm. Uh, in Southeast Asia, there's a virus that has taken off in seasonally called Nipah virus uh, that is transmitted by bats. Bats um, will uh, feed on in these trees and their saliva will drip into the sap. And the sap is traditionally consumed by people very freshly. They like to drink it the next morning right away. When it forms overnight, they take a sip and unbeknownst to them in the sap was the virus and they become very sick. Uh, a Nipah virus uh, has caused many outbreaks over the years, and now we understand it came from bats. Um, And so that scientific connection was definitely made with Nipah virus. Now that's a different virus, and that's a different form of transmission, namely drinking the sap that has the virus in it. We don't know with coronavirus how transmission may occur in wildlife. If it has occurred in wildlife, it would be via sap or saliva or blood or shared air. Obviously, we know in humans, you know, the the reason we're all wearing masks, of course, is because we now understand this to be something that is uh, driven by respiratory transmission. But um, we just don't really have all the answers yet with coronavirus. But the lab, um, the lab theory 
scientists think are pretty unlikely. That doesn't mean it should be dis dismissed completely. Um, yeah. And it's something that the WHO panel said, you know, should continue to be explored. Um, but also a lot of this is very political, both in what went into the report and the access that people had in China to do this examination. And that can't be discounted either. Do you, do you think that there will be like a smoking gun? Is there some kind of smoking gun where we could say like, yes, that definitely came from from this species or or pass from this species to another species? I mean, or is it just going to always be this kind of nebulous connection between, you know, is is there something like that that would, that would you know? I think, yeah, that is the most relevant question here. And unfortunately, <laughs> I think, honestly, I don't think a smoking gun will ever be found. We still don't know for sure what happened with SARS. We still don't know for sure what happened with Ebola, for example. Right. Um, and, you know, like Ebola, again, another bat-linked virus, um, where people think that bats played a vital role. Um, when I was covering Ebola at Scientific American, and I think you were still there too, you know, I wrote about yeah. a study that came out where uh, they they thought, oh man, maybe we found a smoking gun. There was this one tree that had, that was a roost for these bats. That they thought really might be the host bats, a type of fruit bat that had Ebola and they wanted to go and sample them. But for whatever reason, when the scientists got there, the tree had been burned down and there was no bats left. There was like <laughs> fragments of DNA, but there were no bats. And, you know, there are different ideas about why the tree got burned down, if it was indeed concern about, you know, yeah. this potential transmission or, or what exactly happened there. But they were hoping that would be a smoking gun. It's very difficult in the wild to find and trap a species in time, especially when it's a winged species, yeah. um, to try to get that information and they weren't able to get it. So yeah. I, all we can get to with a lot of these viruses, unfortunately, and these outbreaks is a likely scenario. Yeah. We say, okay, all the circumstantial evidence points to that it's likely that this happened. Therefore, operating th theory will be this. And so we should take these particular actions to protect people, like staying away from bats, like considering what we're doing as far as the wildlife trade. And that's just sort of the best we can hope for, as well as, of course, uh, coming up with medications and vaccinations for a given disease to the best of our capabilities. Yeah. Um, but, you know, years ago, before Anthony Fauci was a household name and he was just a director of a relatively obscure uh, institute at the NIH, if you weren't that familiar with medicine, um, yeah. and, he, and he had been there for decades, he said, you know, the thing that kept him up at night was concern about a very transmissible flu is what he said at the time. Something that was uh, passed via respiratory transmission, like coronavirus, something that wasn't super deadly, so it wouldn't instantly kill its host. It would be passed from person to person, so that would be concerning. Um, something that had a relatively long, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, a relatively long period between when you may have contracted it and when your symptoms started to show. Um, and unfortunately, we see all of that with coronavirus. Coronavirus yeah. is not a flu, but it is a virus that sounds somewhat what, like Anthony Fauci was describing years yeah. ago. Um, and that's one of the reasons that coronavirus is so concerning here. Um, and we're learning so much about it every well, day. So, so um, you met, so what were those things you mentioned? You said that they, it was highly transmissible, had a long incubation. Incubation? Is that the Yeah, that was that's, the word. Thank term, you yes. very much. <laughs> you got there. I appreciate it. Um, and, and, was, it was and it was passed via respiratory transmission. Respiratory you know? transmission. Yeah. So, yeah. so given your public health background, um, you know, is there anything that would would have potentially made coronavirus worse? I, I've been thinking about that lately is, is you know, what if coronavirus was bad and and, you know, the conditions still exist by which, you know, we could have novel other novel viruses coming down the line. Yeah. You know, what what would be worse than coronavirus? <laughs> well, it can always be worse, Eric. Just the fact, <laughs> because because yeah. because you think about something like I think a, 
and I could be completely wrong on this, but I think Ebola didn't spread as much as we thought because it is so virulent that it, mm-hmm. you know, if, if a virus is too people. deadly, it just kind of flames out and kills everyone and it can't spread. So it's like, it can't be, it can't be, it can't be too deadly, but it has to be, you know, if it's not deadly enough, then we don't care, right? We, we're not concerned about it. So right. I'm just trying, I was- Not to make light of it, but you're exactly right. Like. Goldilocks virus, Goldilocks. It really needs to find its sweet spot. Deadly, but not too deadly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. From a standpoint, it needs to survive. Well, yeah. What What would be something that would be worse? Let's see. Well, it would be worse if it could easily, very easily spread from one species to another. Mm. You know, if it was something that was in our livestock and was something that was routinely in our pets, that would be worse because there'd be a lot more transmission back and forth. Um, We wouldn't be, you know, that would raise a lot of questions about our um, supply chain and food, what we would do with, you know, what's traditionally done to protect in an animal outbreak is we um, slaughter all the affected animals, whether they have it or not, just as a protective precaution. So if we had to wipe out all the pigs and all the chickens and all the turkeys and all the cows, that's hypothetical, of course, but that would be a big deal also for world hunger and starvation and supply that's chains. Great, yeah. So that would be worse for sure. Um, I was also, th- oh, sorry. I was also thinking that um, we, we, we've been very lucky in that COVID doesn't affect uh, infants or, you know, it doesn't seem okay. to affect young people. I could imagine that would be much worse, right? Because if, yeah, if COVID had been something that affected younger people, we would, it would have been a very different scenario in terms of lockdowns and things like we would have been, I mean, especially people with kids. Yeah. Obviously we know it does affect kids and children, but yeah. the symptoms are for the most part been very minimal. Yes, you know, people yes. say like yeah, for infants, it's more like a cold. If there are any symptoms, for the most part of the ones we study, yeah. knock on wood. And obviously it's a different picture for teenagers, you know, that have been found. Well, and as, a, as I know personally, the yeah. little kids are, are the ultimate disease vector because they, <laughs> they touch everything and put everything in their Absolutely. mouth and cough on Absolutely. you and rub yeah. body fluids all over you. And I've had um, hand, foot, mouth disease like twice for my, oh. for my eldest son, um, oh, which isn't so something cool. that like adults get very often, but right. I, you oh, know, so. Sorry to hear that. That's Anyways, rough. yeah. Yeah, no, that's it's rough. A side uh, note, but. Um, yeah. Um, so that, I, that was one thing I thought of as well. Um, yeah. I'm struck by what's interesting with coronavirus is that it does affect young, healthy people. You know, like people in their 20s and 30s initially were, you know, some people thought, okay, I'm good, I run marathons, I'm solid, don't worry about me. But, you know, obviously those same people ended up on respirators in some instances, and that's, you know, underscoring how deadly this is and how much we've learned in the course of this pandemic about what the virus can do. I guess it could also be worse if the incubation period was even longer. You might think you're out of the woods and let's say if the incubation period was more like a month, like that there'd be this big window period where you wouldn't know. Um, What's remarkable, even though obviously a lot of the headlines every day right now are talking about all the uh, problems with the vaccine rollout is that within a year, there were several vaccine options. It's never been done before in history. Yeah. It's hard to take a breath and remember that for a second because we're all, myself included, so worried and eager and want this to be over and want our vaccines. But the fact that we were able to, you know, that and science is at a place where mRNA vaccines seem promising enough to go forward with that pathway and that we have several options and that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for some degree of, I won't say normalcy, but a return to some daily functioning, you know, is within sight in some countries, not everywhere in the world, but in the United States, Um, that's really incredible. So if we didn't have that capability, that would be worse. I mean, imagining year after year of, you know, you can't, you can't stay in lockdown forever. Yeah, I mean, I had the thought too that in a way that this has been, I mean, not for the people that, that have had health issues or passed away, obviously, but right. it's almost kind of like a warning shot um, that, you know, th- th- that this could happen again. And, and now we have something that we can respond with very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I think, I think vaccines took 
you know, could take a decade to to test and, and get ready for market, and, and we did it in a year. So we, we've shown that we can do that. And Absolutely. so that's kind of cool in a way, um, a, a silver it, lining. Yeah, and it's possible that this will fuel more funding towards more um, testing at the human wildlife interface for other potential disease threats yeah. so that we could more quickly gear up to make vaccines uh, for other potential threats or at least monitor them more appropriately. I've been in, I'm based in Washington DC and I've been here long enough to be kind of skeptical of larger whole scale change. Unfortunately, I'm kind of cynical um, <laughs> that there will be much more testing that's taking place. I think we have a relatively short memory about these sorts of things that require a lot of funding and a lot of infrastructure yeah. to be built into place. Um, and so I hope that that sort of thing happens, but a lot of that testing that needs to take place needs to be a more active monitoring system, meaning people have to go out and routinely do testing of many different animals in many different places on a regular basis, not just you know once every year if you're thesis happens to overlap with it. Um, and as consequence, it's a pretty large change from what we do now. There are some surveillance systems in, in place right now through One Health Initiatives. This is this framework of looking at the world that says, you know, we're all interconnected animals and people. And so if the animals are healthy, the people are healthy. And let's make sure that we are holistically looking at any disease outbreak. Um, across the biological spectrum. And that's a great way to look at the world. Um, but the reality is a lot of the testing still remains relatively small scale, unfortunately. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's been recognized as a big need. Yeah, that's that's a really um, interesting point. Um, I mean, I guess it's like any other global issue. It's, it's hard to find the political will to to do those sorts of big initiatives. Um, I mean, we're still, everything's country by country, so. And um, even predating, to your point, even predating this threat, you know, with other realistic threats in the world, deforestation, climate change, disease threats are constantly growing um, from the standpoint of when you cut down the forests, the wildlife that's in there needs somewhere to go. So there are closer interactions with people as, you know, the animals are looking for food and as the people are going further and further into their territories, encountering them um, and so forth, that leads to disease outbreaks. Like there's another disease called hantavirus um, and it's carried by rodents and it can sicken people. And you cut down the forest, the rodents run out of the forests. They come into the communities where the people live looking for food and people get sick. That's reality. Yeah, yeah. And with climate change, you know, warming the earth, certain types of insects like mosquitoes that carry bugs, their ranges will change, they will bite people, diseases take off, like all of these things are cyclical. They have, you know, direct cause and effect relationships. And that's, you know, it's all about managing risk, what risk we're willing to live with. And that's something we constantly, yeah. as policy, mem you know, as policymakers, as community members, as public health folk, everyone needs to be thinking about. And we as journalists, write about and question people about <laughs> so um so yeah i mean i i wanted to ask you about that the uh yeah. you know i hear that a lot i hear that a lot from in particular conservation organizations mm -hmm. that you know climate change uh, uh habitat destruction those kinds of things it will increase the risk of potential you know future zoonotic diseases and pandemics I mean, do we have good evidence for that or are they just sort of, you know, I'm I'm also cynical that they're maybe trying to try trying to tie this tie their mission into the mission of you know, tie their mission into the the current crisis that we have going on. You know, it's like, "Oh, if you want to stop future covid's like support our organization." I mean, is there is there like actually do we actually have good evidence that that's true or is it another one of these sort of more nebulous connections mm -hmm. um where it's kind of like, well, we know if we, you know, create these conditions it will lead to this, but we can't say conclusively that that's true. Yeah, that's a really great question and you do have to be wary to some extent about, you know, overarching messages that feed into you know, someone's advocacy goals, even if they aren't entirely evidence-based. We do have evidence um, for some of this, like with hantavirus, yeah, for example, there are definite studies that say, look, you cut down this and more people got hantavirus, shrug. I mean, not shrug, <laughs> say that facetiously, um, <laughs> that there is evidence behind that. 
Um, and right. we've seen with the destruction of uh, habitat, you know, there have been other diseases that have taken off. Um, even even diseases like um, Zika, which were originally, you know, believed to have taken place, you know, in one obscure jungle area for among animals and then people you know came into those areas and that's where we were thought to have encountered it and it took off in humans obviously you know there are countless examples like that where closer interactions with wildlife yeah. have caused disease as far as climate change goes um there are studies that look at ranges changing for vectors meaning the animals that or in this case bugs that carry diseases we see the ranges changing so logically it follows, okay, the range changed, they moved over here, people live over here, or the bugs are living a longer seasonal life because of the uh, temperature change. We have data that shows that. It's not just, you know, people making a leap. We have data that shows it. And so it makes sense that um, those arguments are being made because they're evidence-based. Yeah. Um, and then there are things that aren't driven, you know, directly by animals like asthma, for example, with climate change increases, you know, that exacerbates people's asthma. That's not an animal caused thing. That's just more people get sick. Sure. Um, and ditto seasonal allergies, obviously. Um, so the reality is we, these are kind of intangible things, right? People aren't thinking about them because you, you, you can't make the direct connection with numbers. And that's what's really tough. I mean, you can say from a correlation standpoint, before we had this many cases, now we have this many cases. This is how much warmer it is, or this is how much forest was cleared in the area. And here's how we're making the argument. And you can follow the logical pathway, but that doesn't fit into a 30 second soundbite. Yeah. And that makes it harder for everyone to immediately make that connection, understand it, and want to put funding behind it. Yeah. And that's a struggle that Fortunately, I am not a policy person who needs to make that case to my constituency. My constituency, if you will, is the public reading my articles and right, can right. make their connections and make their decisions based on the evidence that's provided. But um, nowadays, my beat is very limited to wildlife, crime, and trade, so I don't dive into those questions at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just you know. Speaking of the public, though, I think I think it is difficult to make um make a case on these these more i don't want to i mean nebulous sounds kind of pejorative but it's mm -hmm. but these bigger global conservation issues or bigger global disease issues yeah. or food security or whatever whatever issue you want to pick because yeah. like you said it doesn't fit into a nice 30 second soundbite um, so, but so that's you know something. Yeah, maybe the, the the people doing policy or the PR for for policy need to work yeah, on. Yeah. You know, and um, totally. So we talked um, we talked a lot about Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, is there anything unique about that region in terms of v viruses? Uh, or other zoonotic diseases originating there? Or are there other parts of the world that we should be concerned about and looking at? I imagine there are sort of hotspots for this that, that are outside of Asia as well. Um, yeah, that's a great question. In short, I don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, so the end, no. But, uh, <laughs> okay, I'm, great, I'm, all right, talk to you later. <laughs> there are, yeah, so, there, of course, the population is huge in China. The number of people is huge. Right. The country is also huge. So when people think about some of these disease threats taking off, though, you know, you have to think about it in that lens as well. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of animals, they're living closely together, in some cases eating wildlife or raising wildlife um, on a larger scale. So that's something to be considered. Um, but obviously Ebola took off in Africa and is bat linked. So there isn't something inherently you know, risky about China's organisms that are different than the rest mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the bats that are capable or believed to be capable of whole, of carrying coronavirus, or at least were known to carry a very similar coronavirus, um, they might be in countries other than China as well. China's really um, stressed in its um, response to coronavirus that it believes that other countries could be at fault behind 
uh, coronavirus taking off originally or the organisms that were carrying it may not have originated in China. That's something that's still being researched. Um, so essentially the zoonotic disease problem is a global one. And, you know, there are, any organ there are many organisms that carry many viruses that may not necessarily sicken those animals, but could sicken people yeah. uh, that are found around the world. But we live in a global society where it's unrealistic and not desired to live in a lockdown. People travel around the world. Yeah. Goods are shipped around the world. It's unrealistic to try to um, limit that, you know, permanently uh, in any scale. And data doesn't support that that would be helpful anyway. Um, and even something as small as, let's say, you're shipping around the world, bugs and rodents may uh, be stowaways, and that has led to disease threats in the past. Uh, for example, um, there's mosquito-borne viruses that have taken off when they've been in shipments. They've been on plants that have been shipped from, yeah. you know, across the Pacific Ocean to the United States, and then mosquitoes that have not previously been in the United States take up residence in California and circulate there. And then it's really hard to wipe them out and efforts are made, but you know, they're very tiny, robust organisms in some cases and you can't wipe them out. And so we need to be thinking in all, in the case of all of these disease threats about taking care of the world, not just ourselves, because no disease will respect boundaries of geopolitical uh, boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not going to cross that line on the map. Um, so right. I'm going to stop here. And uh, exactly, um, you mentioned though, uh, you know, specifically, you know, wildlife farms mm -hmm. and wildlife markets. I mean, we don't. I, I guess in the United States, we do have like mink farms, right? Um, we do. Yeah. So we so we have some of this here too, as well. We don't really have live animal markets. I think that maybe is different. Um, or not and on, on any large scale. Yeah, um, not any. There are organisms. Obviously, we sell seafood that's slaughtered live in, in yeah. markets, but we don't have a large scale yeah. you know, live market wildlife killing. Uh, pardon me, wildlife that's slaughtered at a uh, market scene. That's true. That's different. Yeah. We do have the mink farms. We do have, you know, uh, of course, we've had year after year of avian flu outbreaks that has led to, you know, poultry being um, slaughtered on large scales. Yeah. Um, to try to limit both the threats to the flocks and then of course to people as well since while uh, this avian this year's avian flu has not made a large jump to people though there have been individuals who are sickened or i believe also died though i'm not up on that um we but, haven't seen go, sorry, oh, go ahead so well i was just i was just to bring it back to that to that yeah. question about you know conditions uh yeah, yeah. and sort of being hot spots i mean but you don't think necessarily that it would be in countries that have more of that going on or um, more more wildlife markets and, and yeah. wildlife farming going on? Do you think that those are of particular concern or no, you're Definitely. saying? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, I, I do think, thank you for asking to clarify. Yeah. yeah, I think it does, of course, exacerbate the threat. If you have wildlife and you, and, and especially if some of that wildlife may just be laundered wildlife, so you didn't even breed it in your facility. It's something you took from the wild and brought to the marketplace and housed with your, you know, with many other animals as well. Yeah, that definitely increases the risk of disease outbreaks for people. Um, so it's a hot spot in that sense. Um, but I don't think there's anything inherently risky about animals found in Asia versus Africa, for example, that, you know, makes them more risky, I think. There are a lot of there are a lot of viruses uh, and pathogens in animals that may not sicken animals, but can sicken people. And yeah. it's just a matter of it being in the right conditions for mutate mutations to happen through selective pressure in a certain direction, and then for them to happen to encounter another host species like us that help them make the leap, and then you know the it being able to take off in people. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> let's, right. hope, let's hope at least we get another 10 years or 20 before we have to deal with this again. Um, yeah, I, I do feel fortunate that there are a lot of scientists much smarter than me on these issues who are, you know, who are studying them and trying to find answers and, you know, making policy suggestions as well um, that I hope will bring us, inch us towards a brighter future, if not helping us get yeah. to that leap. Unfortunately, we have an administration now that, that will listen to, to them. 
to the scientists. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing too. Um, hey, science. <laughs> so um, that's probably a good place to end, to end uh, our conversation. But um, it's really been great and like very enlightening and a lot of things that like I hadn't really thought about um, before. So thank you so much. Thanks for thinking so deeply on these <laughs> smart connection questions. I I've, look forward I've, to chatting more. I've been I've been building them up over the past year. <laughs> I've like all my COVID questions. I'm gonna unleash them <laughs> on Dina. Um, so, uh, just to just to wrap up. So, like, where can people find you, and um, where can they find your writing? What I what would it, really where. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So I was just gonna say, what are the links? Where Where are the links? Where are the links? I would appreciate if people want to follow me on Twitter to learn more. My handle's at Dina underscore Marin. That's at D I N A underscore M A R O N. Uh, you can find my work and the work of my team that focuses on wildlife trade and crime called Wildlife Watch at NationalGeographic.com. Uh, forward slash Wildlife Watch um, to get more. I would love if you uh, everyone wanted to check it out. All right. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much. And I hope we can talk again soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye. That's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes by becoming a member on Patreon. Head over to sciencecentric.com slash support for more info. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson. Mm-hmm.